The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. And now he's about to be ruled the property of Starfleet. That should increase his value. In what way? Well, consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. They do the dirty work. They do the work that no one else wants to do because it's too difficult or too hazardous. And an army of data is all disposable. You don't have to think about their welfare. You don't think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people. He's talking about slavery. I think that's a little harsh. I don't think that's a little harsh. I think that's the truth. But that's a truth that we have obscured behind a comfortable, easy euphemism. Property. The concept and practice of unpaid servitude had existed for millennia before the first African slaves reached the shores of North America. It still exists today, but we call it something different, human trafficking. The reason why we use a different term to describe the same concept is because the word slavery has come to mean something quite specific, especially in American culture, the institutionalized subjugation of black men, women, and children, the effects of which are still with us today. The profound impact that slavery has had on the United States resonates throughout all facets of American culture, but curiously enough, the amount of time slavery has been depicted in American entertainment is actually not that many. Not compared to stories about World War II, Vietnam, or other periods in our history. On this episode of Arts Review and Commentary, I'm going to go over some of the defining works in American culture that delve into the world of slavery. Also, I'm going to give my review and commentary on Hollywood's latest entry into the subject, 12 Years a Slave. This is ARC. God bless television. To the movies. To good movies. To every possible kind. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. Is that a hair gel? <coughs> Loud noises! There's no crying in baseball! That's not even a word! Game over, man. Game over. I'll be back. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! These are their stories. From now on, I order you watch more television than ever before. Welcome once again to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. My name is Omar Latiri, and thank you again for tuning in. I want to give a great big thanks to Mark, Lowell, Buzz, RJ, Jabari, and Michael for a great time with the Poor Premium Show with Dave Ricklin. The amount of patience needed to set up and pull off an endeavor like that in as little time as it did was nothing short of exhilarating, and if you're tuning into this podcast because of that show, I hope I won't disappoint. Now, we're going to get into some pretty heavy stuff here, but I think we can manage. Perhaps the first seminal work depicting slavery in the United States was the 1852 novel Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. The book sold 300,000 copies in the U.S. and a million copies in Great Britain. It helped inspire and grow the abolitionist movement in the United States, which in turn influenced elected officials. 
It is not an exaggeration to say that without the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, slavery in America might not have ended when it did. It's been said that at the start of the American Civil War, President Lincoln greeted Harriet Beecher Stowe by saying, So this is the little lady that started this great war. Whether or not it actually happened is one thing, but the impact of this book cannot be overstated. It is included in many most influential books of all time lists and has been retold on stage and on film since its publication over 160 years ago. But perhaps the most telling influence that the book has is that the stereotypes of slave culture that have persisted to this day, the caricatures of the Mammy, Pickaninny, and most notably the Uncle Tom, started out from this book, even if their current representations are not what Harriet Beecher Stowe had in mind. Since Uncle Tom's Cabin, there have been many depictions of American slaves. Another influential American publication was Margaret Mitchell's 1936 novel, Gone with the Wind. If you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. I has told you and told you that she can always tell a lady but the way that she eat in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkerson's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hog. Fiddle dee dee. Ashley Wilkes told me he liked to see a girl with a healthy appetite. What gentlemen says and what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr. Ashley asking for to marry you. When you adjust for inflation and other economic factors, the 1939 movie adaptation of Gone with the Wind is the most successful movie of all time. Think about that. You've heard stories of people who went out and saw Star Wars 15 times when it was in the theaters, right? Gone with the Wind had audiences doing that and then some four decades prior. The lasting success of Gone with the Wind has had a curious effect on the mentality of its fans. Scarlett O'Hara, in particular, is seen as somewhat of a role model against adversity, despite her selfishness. But perhaps the most impact that Gone with the Wind delivered was how it romanticized the Old South. Scarlett's life prior to the Civil War was filled with luxury and suitors, with kind and loyal servants to tend to her every need. It shows privileges that were lost when the North just had to be aggressors and destroy a way of life. The idea of the Southern Belle is with us to this day, and that the brutality that was slavery was used to uphold that dream is something that is willfully ignored. Where you going, boy? Let me buy. Let you buy? Let you buy. Let me tell you something, boy. You can march like the white man, you can talk like him, you can you can learn his songs, you, you can you can even wear his suits, but you ain't never gonna be nothing to him but an ugly ass chimp in a blue suit. A film about the union side of events is chronicled in the 1989 movie Glory. Among the talented cast, Denzel Washington plays a runaway slave named Silas Tripp, whose defiant attitude gets him into trouble after enlisting in the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. Tripp is mistakenly accused of attempted desertion, and his punishment was a public flogging, the standard punishment for all deserters at the time. It is during this whipping scene that Denzel Washington glares at his commanding officer, Colonel Robert Shaw, played by Matthew Broderick, and a single tear falls from Washington's eye. It is said that this tear, combined with that look of suppressed rage, spoke for every single black American who had ever experienced injustice at the hands of whites. That tear also won Denzel Washington his first Academy Award. 
Keegan and I both have white moms. Yes, yes. This is true, we have white moms. And uh, the thing about having a white mom being a black guy is as a kid, a white mom can't hit a black kid in public. Can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. Gets too racial too right. fast. It escalates, it escalates to this racial thing. And I was, I became aware of this at a very young age. I think my mother spanked me once in the grocery store. Uh-huh. I swear to God, Keegan, I, you know that tear that Denzel Washington does in Glory? <laughs> Yeah. When he's getting whipped, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. what I did. And I, I promise you, just instinctively it came out of me. This is what I did. Just hit me like you're my mom in the grocery store. I said, Mama, don't you hit no black boy's booty. <laughs> 200 years ain't nothing changed. There's a phenomenon known as Oscar bait, where a story is told simply to earn accolades in the artistic world. Disabilities, both mental and physical, and the Holocaust are such examples. White boys get all eyes, because it's, it's, it's a fact. We know that, but look, look, look. Did I get a nomination? No, and you know why? Because I, because I ain't playing none of them slave roles. I get my ass whipped. That's when you get the nomination. Kid, that's what Black dudes play a slave role, get his ass whipped, he get the nomination. The white boy play an idiot, they get the Oscar. Maybe I should play, get me, find me a script as a retarded slave, then I get the Oscar. Contrary to that opinion, there really haven't been that many nominations, let alone wins for playing a slave. Yes, Hattie McDaniel won for her role in Gone with the Wind, as did Denzel Washington in Glory, but I'm hard-pressed to think of anyone else. Perhaps the reason for that is that there actually haven't been that many movies about slavery. There have been many depictions of the fight against slavery, from Glory to Lincoln, but they weren't about life as a slave. Steven Spielberg's Amistad was a movie about the slave trade, which was illegal at the time of the movie's setting, but not about life as a slave. To date, the most successful franchise to depict life as an American slave prior to the Civil War is the 1977 epic miniseries, Roots. Your name is Toby. I want to hear you say it. Your name is Toby. You're going to learn to say your name. Let me hear you say it. What's your name? Kunta, Kunta Kinte. Roots, based on the Alex Haley novel tracing his ancestry back to Africa, was an incredible miniseries. Roots captured the American public's attention with an all-star cast and a sweeping scope, telling a story that spanned over a hundred years. The final episode of the miniseries was the highest-rated program in American history, with 100 million viewers watching it. According to Nielsen ratings, 85% of all homes with a television had watched all or part of the miniseries. Like Uncle Tom's Cabin and Gone with the Wind, the Roots miniseries became the standard image of what American slavery was like. Unfortunately, later discoveries would show that Alex Haley was not entirely truthful about his ancestry, and that many inaccuracies regarding life as a slave were perpetuated by both the novel and the miniseries. However, the lack of honesty of Alex Haley is trumped by what was truthfully depicted. You see, I graduated with a degree in history, having taken courses on antebellum America and the civil rights movement. Even though I'm a first-generation American, I still consider myself an American, and American history is part of my own, and a part of my daughter's. But I'm in a unique position in that I have no real connection to my supposed roots, I have no past American heritage that I have to be loyal to. 
my ancestors, had nothing to do with the institution of American slavery, either as perpetrators or participants. Does that mean that I can't have a say about it one way or another? Does that mean that I can't look at the history of the United States and feel shame for its past and pride in its accomplishments? If I'm to treat this land as my home, then it is my responsibility to absorb my home's past into my own psyche. So, as an American, I say that it is the height of ignorance to not acknowledge America's enduring stain on her legacy. Taking pride in our military or scientific achievements means little if we don't accept the shame that has been with this nation since the days of the colonies, referenced in Article I of the Constitution, and to this day it's glossed over. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln enacted the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed slaves from the states in rebellion. Armchair historians and cynics have mocked how that executive decision didn't really do anything. But what they fail to recognize is that history does not occur in a vacuum. Individual acts must be looked at in the context of the whole. The enormity of the decisions that President Lincoln made to end slavery cannot be dismissed as those made of an opportunistic man. No. If you understand that, then you can understand why this scene from Lincoln matters so much. I can't accomplish a goddamn thing of any human meaning or worth until we cure ourselves of slavery and end this pestilential war. And whether any of you or anyone else knows it, I know I need this. This amendment is that cure. We're stepped out upon the world stage now, now, with the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilt to afford us this moment, now, now, now. And you grousel and heckle and dodge about like pettifogging Tammany Hall hucksters. See what is before you. See the here and now, that's the hardest thing, the only thing that accounts. Abolishing slavery by constitutional provision settles the fate for all coming time, not only of the millions now in bondage, but of unborn millions to come. When we come back, my review and commentary on the latest entry into the depiction of slavery, 12 Years a Slave. I'm Mark. And I'm Lowell. Together, we do the Mark and Lowell Show here on the Realm Network. And each week, Buzz Burbank joins us as we present the Mark and Lowell for Premium Show. It's an uncensored weekly chat about our lives and about pop culture, you know, stuff we like. It's funny and anything can happen. And get this, it's just 99 cents an episode, $3.50 for a month, $10.50 for three months, or the big package, $39.95 for the whole year. But, lol, yes, but did you know that when you buy a one-month subscription, you don't just get our new shows for that month, you get a month of 
access to every per premium show we've done on the Realm Network this year. No other podcast we know of gives you that option. The per premium show is the best entertainment we offer and it helps support all the shows on the Realm Network. So do yourself a favor and go to markandlowell.com to sign up for the poor premium shows. It's a whole new realm of news and entertainment. As I know, we get we were traveling. We wish we'd die trying. Survival's not about certain death. It's about keeping your head down. Days ago, I was with my family. In my home. Now you tell me all is lost. Tell no one who I am. That's the way to survive. Well, I don't want to survive. I want to live. 12 Years a Slave is a movie based on the experiences of Solomon Northup, a free man born, raised, and educated in upstate New York. In 1841, while his wife and children are away, Northup, a talented violinist, leaves for Washington, D.C. for a job opportunity, where he is promptly drugged, kidnapped, and sold into slavery. English actor Chiwetel Ejiofor plays Northup in a performance that is nothing short of amazing. What is it with British actors playing Americans so well? We are told by the very title that Solomon Northup spent 12 years as a slave, but we are never given any markers as to the passage of time. The pain and suffering of each moment captured on screen blends into a series of periods, because what is the point of such divisions of time when no one will care? To fathom time spent in such suffering is an added suffering itself, and that Solomon was an educated man who could fathom it makes his experience that much harder. While watching scenes of beatings, rapes, intimidations, and betrayals, I caught myself disconnecting from the humanity of the characters. It was as if I was watching a dramatization of another culture, sometimes even another world. The disregard for life seemed so alien that I had to remind myself that these events happened. And they didn't happen for 12 years, they happened for 200. What makes this especially hard to comprehend is that everything about it was legal until 1865. Shock is one thing to experience at the cruelty that can be found in this world now and in the past, but the only real emotion to feel about the legality of this institution is shame. Doing my research on this story, I discovered that Solomon Northup's book that this movie is based on did quite well, but it's not remembered as well as an anti-slavery book because of what was published earlier that year, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Knowing that, the character of Eliza in Twelve Years a Slave seems a very symbolic one now. When the characters of Solomon and Eliza talk and argue with each other, it seems as if the two novels are talking to each other as well. Eliza, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, is unequivocal about the evil of slave masters, however nice they might be. Solomon is more nuanced, understanding the decency that might be found in even a slave owner. Throughout the movie, religion plays a double-edged sword. Scripture is used to justify keeping slaves in line, while spirituals are used to lighten Solomon's heart near the end of the movie. 
but perhaps the most religious symbol comes in the form of a white traveler with long hair and a beard who eventually helps deliver Solomon from the hell that is the plantation. Yes, Brad Pitt is Jesus. Four and a half stars out of five for 12 Years a Slave. I have no doubt that this movie will be used in classrooms for generations to come. And if you do decide to watch it, remember, there are two girls named Sasha and Malia who wouldn't be where they are now without the struggles of men like Solomon Orthop. That's it for this episode of Arts Review and Commentary. Be sure to catch the next ARC episode when I'll go over my favorite scary supernatural movies. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcreviews. Follow the show on Twitter at arcreviews. And you can email me at artsreviewandcommentary at gmail.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is ARC. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network. 